For the last couple weeks, we have been exploring and dusting off spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, practices that not only deepen our relationship with God, but also shape our character, what we think about, how we act. This is where disciplines like fasting and Sabbath-keeping reorient our lives. And today, as we wrap up this short series, we're going to consider the practice of prayer. Of all of the disciplines in the Christian life, none is more central and foundational than prayer. In fact, apart from prayer, spiritual disciplines like fasting And Sabbath-keeping, as good as they are, they become empty rituals, dead and lifeless practices that don't bring us into living communion with Jesus, and therefore they're devoid of power. Few Christians have known this truth, the importance and the power of prayer in history better than Corey Ten Boom, an amazing woman of prayer. Those of you familiar with her story know that she lived in German-occupied Holland in 1944. And Corrie Tim Boom was inspired by the Lord during World War II to lead an underground network of folks that provided refuge to Jewish people to hide them from Nazi soldiers as they were sweeping houses and taking people off to prison camps. Corey, an amazing woman of faith, she was inspired by the Lord during that difficult time. She'd write later in her book, Hiding Place, that every day, not knowing what to do, she would bring her daily decisions before the Lord in prayer. And Corey said that she found that she was inspired in her heart and in her mind by a divine strategy higher than her. Of course, those familiar with Corey's legacy and her story know that she was eventually discovered by Nazi soldiers and placed in Ravensbrück, an infamous Nazi concentration camp. While she was on the way to that camp, she she smuggled a Bible in and miraculously As she was searched, the Nazi soldiers didn't discover this Bible. And so Corey, each week, in a lice-infested, rat-infested barrack, she would open up God's word, most often to the Psalms, and they would hold weekly times of prayer and scripture reading. Many years after her release, from Ravensbrook, this incredible woman of faith once posed a simple question about prayer that I've been reflecting on all week. And the question that Corey wrote is this. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? How about that for a question? After the service, we'll go out to our vehicles, and in each vehicle, it's outfitted with both a spare tire and a steering wheel. But they have very different purposes. 
When you are driving, it's vitally important to keep your hands on the steering wheel at all times. Hence the bird box challenge. Don't drive blindfolded and don't drive without both hands on the steering wheel. A vital instrument, the most crucial instrument that determines the direction of your car, keeps you on the straight and narrow, if you will. But it also determines the road that got you here and will safely be the instrument that brings you to the destination that you decide upon. But a spare tire in your car plays a secondary role. You may have never touched the spare tire in your car out in the parking lot. In fact, you might not even know where it is. It's probably new and unused because it's only needed and busted out in the case of an unforeseen emergency. So once again, I put Corey's question before you. Is prayer more like a steering wheel or a spare tire in your life? Does your prayer life determine the direction and the course of your daily interactions? Where you're going, what you think about, what you do? Is it something that you have your hands on throughout your day? Or is it like a spare tire? Something that you only use in times of emergency and crisis. For most of the day, you forget that it's there. You're not sure how to use it. And you find yourself fumbling through the motions when you run into a crisis in life. Listen, friends, if you're here today and you've ever struggled with prayer, if it feels more like a spare tire in the trunk of your life than a steering wheel, you know how to maneuver. I have some very good news for you. You are not alone, not by a long shot. And as we'll see, Jesus' very own disciples struggled to know how to pray and what to pray. And so, one day on an occasion while Jesus was praying, his disciples approached him with the best request they ever conjured up. And they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. With that question in mind, we're going to see Christ's response to his disciples. If you'll turn to Luke 11, we're going to fast forward in Luke's gospel. Next week, we're going to jump back into Luke 4, where we left off. But this week, we're going to fast forward to the, the famous passage where Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's in Luke 11. We're going to dive in at verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins 
For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him what he, whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. There are so many gems to mine out of this passage. And because our time is going to be shortened together today, what we're going to do is very, very simple in our time together. We're going to glean three lessons from Jesus in this passage to help us pray regularly as we step into this new year together. Here's the three things that we're going to learn from Jesus in this passage. The priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, and the privilege of prayer. Let's start by paying attention to how Jesus prioritizes prayer in this passage. It's worth noting that before Jesus says a word about prayer in the passage that we just read, first we see him simply praying. Luke begins the passage by telling us now Jesus was praying in a certain place. What's interesting, and one of the things you may notice as you read the Gospel of Luke, which I hope that you're doing this year, that's completely unique to Luke's Gospel, it actually contains more scenes of Jesus praying and teaching his disciples to pray than any other Gospel account. In fact, it's worth noting that every single major event in Christ's life and ministry is marked by prayer. Back in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism, as the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ, the anointed king, who has been chosen to bring God's kingdom to bear on our broken world, Luke tells us that before the Spirit fell upon Christ and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, he was praying. You look at Christ's miracles in the Gospel of Luke before he feeds a crowd or heals someone with epilepsy or with other diseases. We often find Christ at the work of prayer. Before the selection of his 12 apostles in chapter 6, 
of Luke. Christ spends the entire night before that selection is made in prayer to his father. At his transfiguration in chapter 9, Christ is praying. His last supper in chapter 22, Christ is praying. In Gethsemane, he's wrestling all night in prayer. Even in his final moments before his death is Jesus The perfect, sinless Son of God is hanging on a cross. We see him channeling his final breaths into prayers. A prayer of mercy. The very people responsible for putting him up on the cross in chapter 23, verse 34, Christ prays from the cross this prayer of mercy and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ's final breath is recorded in verse 46 of the same chapter. And he uses the final breath and energy that he has in his body before he breathes his last to pray to his father and he prays, Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. Luke tells us, having said this prayer, he breathed his last. Friends, let me ask you something. If prayer was such a priority for Jesus, the word made flesh, the sinless son of God, all wisdom, all power, perfect member of the Trinity, prioritized prayer, In his life, Luke tells us, would often withdraw from the crowds and go seek out desolate places to prayer. His whole life was immersed in prayer. Shouldn't prayer be more than a spare tire that we keep around for emergencies? If Jesus' life and ministry was directed, driven by prayer, I think it's time that some of us trade our spare tire approach to prayer for a steering wheel and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Amen? Amen. We should always be praying that prayer. There's never a time where we graduate out of the school of prayer with Christ. There's always more to learn, room to grow. So this prayer request, Lord, teach us to pray. That's exactly where this passage leads us. Let's back up and look at verse one again and read how Jesus responds to this simple request. Lord, teach us to pray. Luke tells us now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, Say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. I think it's interesting in this passage what the disciples don't ask Jesus. What they don't ask Jesus is, Lord, 
teach us about prayer. Give us a teaching or just simply a lesson on prayer. Instead, they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And having been around Jesus and seen the way that he prioritized and practiced prayer, they asked to learn to pray more like him. Now, what's intriguing about this request, Lord, teach us to pray, is that Jesus' disciples were raised in Jewish homes where prayer was an everyday staple of life. Like most Jews, they would have attended synagogue and temple services regularly. So from childhood, they would have been taught to pray the Shema, the most important and central prayer of the Jewish faith, at least three times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening, they would lift their eyes and lift their hands to the heavens and pray, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Make no mistake, Jesus' disciples knew how to say their prayers. However, something about the way that Jesus prayed was qualitatively different than anything they had ever heard. The way that Jesus talked to his father was so different than the rote religious prayers that Jesus' disciples had heard the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees lift up during temple and synagogue services. Unlike their prayers, Jesus' prayers were unrehearsed, honest, reverent, personal, simple, and powerful. So after witnessing Jesus pray on countless occasions, one day the disciples approach Jesus and ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Which is really just another way of them saying, Lord, teach us to pray like you pray. So Jesus responds by giving them a prayer lesson and a model to follow known as the Lord's prayer that we just read moments ago. Now, for some of you, you may have grown up in homes or gone to church services where the Lord's Prayer was recited all the time. As a result, you might have to wrestle these words out of the rut of mindless repetition and and restrain the inner awana in you that just knows the right prayer (laughs) to say so that you don't become somebody that, that actually heaps up empty phrases in your prayers as Jesus warns his disciples not to pray in Matthew chapter 6. For others, I imagine many who are sitting here today, the Lord's Prayer may feel intimidating and kind of like foreign territory, filled with churchy words and phrases that you don't fully grasp. 
Here's the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. No matter where you are in your walk with Christ, you need this prayer. You need this prayer. In the same way that you need a steering wheel to get you home, this prayer will deepen and give direction to your purse. For those of you that have spent your whole lives praying, well, you may discover with the Lord, Lord's Prayer, it will strip away a lot of the religiosity, a lot of the familiarity in your prayer as you pray this prayer mindfully. For others of you that are just learning to pray like a steering wheel, you can grab this by two hands each day, pull it out, and it will take you everywhere that you need to go in your Christian life. This prayer has never been improved upon, and we should never, ever graduate beyond the daily rhythm of using this prayer as a guide and as a pattern in our own praying. So with our time remaining, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to put before you a simple pattern that I apply in my own life that will help you pray the Lord's Prayer in your own time with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit as you enter into this year. And I make you this promise. If you begin to learn how to pray this prayer from your life, no other habit will change and alter the direction of your life like this, like learning to pray this prayer. So let me give you a very simple pattern to follow. Three words. Worship, relinquish, and request. Worship, relinquish, request. The order is important. Before one request is uttered in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples to begin their praying by worshiping and adoring who God is. It's why in verse 2, first words of the prayer that Christ gives to his disciples are these, Father, hallowed be your name. The word that hallowed there that Jesus uses and teaches his disciples to pray by it means to make something holy. It means to set something aside and to give it the highest honor, to give it ultimate place and value in your life. It's a worship word. Here's what I've found in my own praying over the years. Apart from worship and hallowing God's name, my prayers begin to orbit around me, my problems, my plans, my priorities, my petitions and needs. But worship, like nothing else, has a way of right-sizing and reorienting our daily lives around who God is. For me, this habit involves praying the Lord's Prayer with the Psalms open in the morning and evening. For years now, I've bookended my day with the Psalms because the Psalms for centuries have shaped both the public and private worship of God's people. It is the prayer book of the church. It is the prayer book that Jesus memorized so many of these prayers, and we see him turning the Psalms into prayers. The beautiful thing about the Psalms 
is that you cannot pray them honestly without being challenged and stirred to worship. They're drenched and saturated with the utter uniqueness, the utter goodness of God. Every every praise, every prayer of the Psalms will stir you. It will move you. It'll challenge you to worship the Lord. You know, one of the ironic things, we sang that song, So Will I. And there's a line in there, if if the stars were made to worship, so will I. As image bearers of God, we are actually the most reluctant creatures in all of creation to actually ascribe to God what belongs to him. Glory, praise to his name, the name above all names, the hallowed name of God that is worthy of our praise, we're the most reluctant worshipers. Can I tell you something? If you camp out with the Lord's Prayer and you begin your day with the first words off your lips, Father, hallowed be thy name. You open up the Psalms and you pray back to God these great declarations of his glory, of his goodness, of his grace, you'll become a worshiper, friend. You will. You will. Amen? Amen. After worship comes relinquishing. (laughs) Jesus teaches his disciples to pray these words next in verse 2. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Matthew's version that so many of us have memorized adds, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In order to pray those words, you must relinquish your will and your agenda on a daily basis. Now, for the planners, goal-oriented people, people who love their calendars, this is actually really difficult. This is very difficult. Frankly, it's much easier to ask God to bless our plans and agenda than to relinquish control over our lives and pray Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And I can testify to that from my firsthand experience. Ever since the fall of last year, after going through a two-day life planning and prayer process with my wife, Julie, the Lord inspired me to begin my days differently. And I know this was not the kind of idea I would conjure up, but I believe this was an idea impressed upon me by the Holy Spirit. Each morning after coffee is brewed, that might not be the Lord's idea, that might be mine, I lay out my Bible and my daily planner. I have this fancy daily planner right here. I lay them out before the Lord After praying through a psalm, spending some time in worship, I relinquish my plans and my priorities, the things that I want to get done each day. I lay every meeting, every appointment, every person that I'm scheduled to meet with before the Lord, and I pray, Heavenly Father, Let your kingdom come and let your will be done in my day as you see fit. And here's what I've discovered from doing this discipline. Jesus 
loves blowing up my plans. Like he smiles. He loves it. He loves it. This last Thursday, I had a great plan. It was even, you might say, a godly plan. A godly plan. A good plan and a godly one. My plan, here it was. I was going to wake up, brew coffee. My wife was off of work that day. And I wanted to have breakfast with her, spend time with her. Then I wanted to go about the business of actually writing the rest of my sermon, typing it in to my computer, and getting a lot of other things done for the day in the morning. Unbeknownst to me, at 12.53 a.m., before Thursday, Wednesday, or Thursday morning, 12.53 a.m., a branch fell in that great windstorm that has been punishing us this week. A great branch fell, and the power was cut from my house. No coffee? no computer, no Wi-Fi. And it was the greatest gift that my wife and I have received in 2019 because here's what we did. We lit a fire and we devoted the whole morning to prayer together. Going before our Father, praying for one another, praying for you, for our River West community, for many of the needs here praying for our kids. We devoted the morning to prayer. There's a novel idea. The guy that was slotted to preach on Sunday actually practicing prayer for an entire morning with his bride. That plan was better than mine. So here's my experience and and Jesus promised to you. If he blows up your plans, he has a purpose and here it is. His plans are better. His agenda is perfect. His kingdom wants to disrupt your world so that God can do through his power something greater than you can comprehend or that can fit in your daily planner. So don't fight it. Those divine interruptions are often opportunities for us to relinquish control over our lives and say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Amen. Lastly, Jesus tells us after worship, relinquishing our plans and our agenda, receiving the kingdom, God's will, Jesus tells us to bring our requests before God. So we see three requests in this passage. Three simple requests in verses three and four. Give us each day our daily bread, which is a request for daily provision. It may not be bread that we need each day in our context here in America, but this request for daily bread on the table, it could also be a request for a job or for a medical appointment, for a disease that's crippling the life of somebody that you love, that you care about. We bring our needs, our daily needs, and God gives and promises daily provision. Jesus then goes on to tell his disciples to pray for daily grace. In verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And how we need that forgiveness each day. 
how we need it in our relationships to heal and mend wounds, how we need that in our relationship with God each day to be reminded that we come to him in prayer because we are blood-washed, forgiven children. Amen? And lastly, we see a request just for daily guidance and protection as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and lead us not into temptation. Later on in our series in Luke, we're going to actually mine these requests deeper. But I want you to notice, actually, that each request that Jesus puts before his disciples and encourages them to pray, daily bread on the table, forgiven relationships, daily guidance, is not just a request for me personally, but it's a communal request. Jesus teaches us to pray in the plural. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And lead us not into temptation. We are to be others conscious as we pray the Lord's Prayer, seeking the welfare of others and not just our own interests and needs. As Pastor Eric mentioned, this is the heart behind Serve Sunday and why we coordinate this event and this opportunity each year. It's the reason that our church is committed to being a community of Christ for the world and not just a church on Country Club Road that serves really good coffee. Friends, a church that says, Lord, teach us to pray will inevitably grow into a community that prays, Lord, send us to serve. If we learn to pray from Jesus, then those prayers will turn us outward and will propel us out of our prayer closet into our community with a heart and hands to serve. So let me conclude our brief time together in this marvelous passage by sharing with you why we can pray assuredly, knowing that God hears and answers. It is the great privilege of prayer that we call the gospel, the good news, the bedrock of the Christian faith, and the way that Jesus shares this good news, why you can know that God will hear and answer your prayers in 2019. Jesus tells us that good news in the form of a parable. You read it, and I'd like to go back to verse 5 and quickly just read this passage again. Look at this picture that Jesus paints in this parable. He said to his disciples, which of you has a friend? Will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer him from within Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence, some translations put that, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, more often than not, 
On the topic of prayer, when this passage is used, this parable is more often taught to impress upon us the importance of the persisting in prayer, persistence, which is absolutely an aspect of prayer. It takes some work and some persistence to actually get a handle on the practice of prayer. But can I tell you something? Jesus' main point is not persistence in this parable. That's not the heart of of the parable. It's not the main message of the parable, persistence. Jesus tells this parable to actually paint a picture of the great privilege that you and I have as God's children. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not the friend in need on the outside knocking on the door. You are the beloved child on the inside, safe and secure in the loving care of your father. In fact, I can prove actually that the father in this parable Jesus told that it's not an accurate picture of our father because the man knocking on the door from inside the house, the father in that parable is an imperfect earthly father because he says, don't bother me. Man, if you're going around with a picture of God up in heaven that you're praying and he's bothered by your prayers and you have to bang on the door, let me tell you, that is not an accurate picture of the Father in heaven whatsoever. That's a picture of what I would do if you came banging on my door at 3 a.m. wanting bread. I wouldn't come. I love you. I would come if you kept on beating, but I might call the police because I'm, I'm imperfect and I'm broken. And the whole point of the parable is if you guys, earthly parents know how to give good gifts to your kids, your kid wakes up in the middle of the night and says, you know, mom, dad, I need a drink of water. You give it to him. If you need bread, you don't give somebody a rock. You don't give a serpent to a kid that needs a glass of cold water. If we who are evil need know how to good good gifts to our kids, then what about our heavenly father when we bring our requests before him? Listen, friends, you don't have to bang on the door to get God's attention. You're his beloved child. And a simple father, I need you. Forgive me lead me, will do. That's the great privilege. If you are here today and you're still making sense of the Christian faith, Christ's promise is for you. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And Christ the Lord himself will come into your life, rearrange everything, and make you his child. That's the great promise of the gospel, friends. It's why we sing. It's why we worship. It's why we serve. Can I get a couple amens? Amen. Let's go to prayer, but let's be mindful as as we pray, and then we're going to respond by going to the communion table this morning. Let's be mindful for a moment of the great God that we're going to in prayer. Let's take a moment and let's just silence our hearts.
Father, what a privilege. What, what grace. Lord, that you would welcome us as children, that you would hear our prayers, that you would give to us in grace everything that we need. Father, I pray that you would teach us as a community to pray like your son. So that our lives more might be poured out, Lord, more faithfully in, in the way that we worship, the way that we live. That prayer for us, Lord, we would be moved. Father, to not only pray for our needs, but to learn to pray more faithfully, Lord, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our church, in our city, in our world, Lord. Give us the Holy Spirit, how we need your help in our praying and serving, Lord. Apart from you, we can do no good thing. But with you, all things are possible. So, Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. In Christ's name we pray.